Hello, and welcome to another episode of Releasing Your Inner Dragon with Drake and Marie. Today, we are going to get into some writing craft stuff like dialogue and how to interject pauses that feel like pauses to the readers. We're going to talk about the importance of minor characters. We're going to talk about weird dialogue tags and when to use them. We're going to do all of that by looking at some examples from our book that we're working on together, since that is the project we are both deeply invested in right now. So <laughs> it's going to feature. So, but before we get into it, my name is Marie Mullaney. I write fantasy and this with, with me is my co-host Drake. I also write fantasy as well as teach all over the world. We would really appreciate it if you would hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, follow us, share us with your friends, and make sure that people see this content so we keep making it. This came about, this podcast came about because we were chatting about a piece of dialogue in, actually in chapter two of our book. Chapter two or chapter three? Well, let's start with chapter two because I want to talk about the asterisks. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I I think the asterisks is actually a really good conversation because we have spoken previously on the podcast about the importance of, um, of using standard dialogue tags. And yet here we standard, are. Standardized formatting. Yeah, standardized formatting. In general. And yet here we are using very non-standardized formatting. Mm-hmm. But there is a good reason for that non-standardized formatting. So do you want to go into your thoughts around this? Yeah. Uh, so standardized, standardized formatting is not something you mess with. A lot of authors, like I've met authors that have used like parentheses around their dialogue. And I'm like, why are you doing that? And they're like, because I like the look of it. And I'm like, it's not for you. It's for the reader. We use standardized dialogue, you know, the double quotes, because readers have been trained that when you see a double quote, you're going to read this differently. It's 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 spoken out loud language. It's the same thing with um, dialogue that's written in italics. Everyone knows they've been trained that this is inner monologue. And so you hit a, you know, you're reading along and it's obviously a line that's not in narration. It's in first person dialogue, but it's in italicized. You read it different. You read it as if the character's saying it in their heads. And the reason for that is so that you don't have, for those that have watched um, House of Cards, wasn't that the political one that Kevin Spacey was in? So in the opening scene of that, I didn't know anything about what they were doing. I just, I just watched it. And the opening scene, he's at this, I think he's at a funeral, if I remember correctly, He's at some outside event where he's in this row of chairs and all of a sudden, you know, it's obviously a lot of powerful people around him. And all of a sudden he turns around in the chair and looks directly at you. And he says, so I would really screw these guys over by just doing this one thing, but I don't think it would be you know, advantageous for me to do it at this time. And when they did it the first time, you're like, he just said that in front of the people, like what is going on? You don't, you just literally, and no one reacts. And then it happens a second time and you're like, oh, this is like inner monologue. He's talking to me. He's not talking to them. This isn't happening in real time. You know, it's not happening out in the open. So it threw, it throws you out for a minute, 
but there's really no other way to do it in video because you have no I guess they did use a visual clue because he actually turns and they use a different camera. So it's not like he's looking this way at, at the camera and then he looks at the camera that is already on him. You know, you're, you know, you're looking at him facing this direction and then all of a sudden the camera's behind him and he turns around and he goes, let me talk to you, the audience. Like, so there is that visual clue that, that he's literally turned to because technically you're behind him if you're the mm -hmm. camera. And so there is a visual clue there, and that was brilliant the way they do it. But in written word, we have an advantage. We have written words. And so when I got, we so one of the characters is named Ghost, and he's actually a entity that lives inside of um, a wristband that's implanted in everybody, but it's, it, it's in this one character. Um, and so it's like an artificial intelligent thing. It isn't actually artificial intelligent, but but it has its own personality. And so when I hit this, and I was like, okay, I want to, I want to show that this is different. I don't want to use it as dialogue. It's not being said out loud. It's being said only in Laron's mind, this character's mind. So I'm like, okay, so I'm definitely going to do it italicized. And so I tried double quotes italicized. And I was like, mm, I don't like the look of that at all. Um, because I do sometimes stress words in dialogue by italicizing them. So I'm like, well, let me try single quote because I'll do that if they're remembering like, oh, my papa used to always say single quote, don't go down to the river without a bucket in single quote and have it all italicized. And it's like, you know, that's me saying, quoting someone else. Um, and I'm talking about in narration. So that would be, I wouldn't do that in dialogue. I would just have him say what his father said in dialogue, but in narration to set it apart from the narration and still make it dialogue, but let the reader know that it's, a third Maybe. party that had said this. So I didn't like that. I tried. I actually did go with brackets. I went with a little squiggly bracket, whatever that thing's called. Um, and I didn't like it. Like those were really jarring. And finally I hit on the, and, and people have used this before. Um, actually my favorite fantasy saga, Joel Rosenberg, um, they have a tele telepathic dragon and he does it exactly this way. So this is not uncalled or unheard of to do it this way. But I did try a few other things beforehand. Um, but once I settled on this, I was like, mm, okay, I do actually like this. Mm -hmm. And so I just made a note to Marie. You can kind of see it there. It's like, you know, I think we should do this. And we had our little discussion about it. Mm -hmm. However, you can't just do it. You have to trick train reader so that's why this paragraph reads it's the first time this thing speaks and it says a soft hum vibrated his arm but he tried to ignore his indent sleeve or ident sleeve now we've already introduced ident sleeves we already know what they are they're in the last chapter so i don't have to worry about you know bringing that up the reader knows that it's this thing that they use for payments and data transfer and and all this other stuff so we know that it's there um now, this line, you may go, well, that line comes out of nowhere, and it, and it kind of does, and it does on purpose. Go seem not to take the hint, because I'm like, this is odd. You need to pay attention, because this has never happened in the story before. And so he says his line. He's being snarky and sarcastic. Um, somebody just asked the question of what better job is there than a politician? And he mm -hmm. says, engineer, scientist, programmer, garbage remover, like, basically anything is better than being a politician. Um but the next line, yes, is there to show how he said it. A giggle laced the expert system's digital voice that filled his mind. 
And really that should be Laron's mind um, because his would point back to expert system. So that needs to be Laron. I'll fix that later. Um, but this line does more than just show how the voice was said. It also is training the reader that it is only in Laron's mind, that it is how this thing communicates. And then as I do it, I'm just constantly making sure that the reader understands this in the beginning. And then eventually it'll just become dialogue. You know, I just won't, I won't have to do this level of stuff. So the next time is really close. So I didn't worry about trying to teach the readers. So um, basically, since this is the first time, and, and this is probably, as you know, dialogue, but it's funny and it's organic and it's not terrible. Um, you know, it's it's not, hey, Finn, as you know, me and you are elfins and elfins only eat honey. But yes, I do know that, you idiot. I've, I've been an elf in all my life. But maybe this is a new relationship between the two of them. And it actually kind of is. They've only, he's they've, it's probably been less than a year that he's had ghosts, maybe less than six months. Um, we haven't worked it out exactly on when the two came together, but it's been long enough that they're comfortable with each other, but still kind of new. But uh, so he says, you know, in the narration, it says he didn't agree, but felt it would be best to keep the the thoughts between himself and his. And so now I, I don't want to explain what what ghost is. That's that we'll get to later. And also he wouldn't see it that way. And so he's like friend, companion, confidant. And then he thinks to himself, what do you call a disembodied voice that lives in your arm? Yes, it's on the nose dialogue because I'm I'm driving home in case you missed that the vibrating arm was ghost. Just in case you missed it, Mr. Reader, I'm going to let literally just hit the nail on the head so that I'm just done with it. Maybe that's overriding. This is something me and Marie, if you listen to the last podcast we talked about, I do tend to go to the... I don't want to lose my readers at all. So I don't mind as long as it feels fairly organic to me and it doesn't throw me out of the story. I usually will let something like this slide. Um, so I just have him ask the question. And, but that reason why he asked that question is specifically to make sure that the reader knows the ghost lives in his arm. So it literally says that lives in your arm. I just don't what, want to lose the reader on it. Yeah. What the line also does though, is it also informs the reader that, Ghost can hear Lyron's inner monologue. Yep. That was the next Which, thing I was going to say. Because yeah. then he answers, back in my day, they'd call me a demon and you'd be burnt to the stake for your sins. And that's just me being snarky, you know, because I'm trying to set up the fact that he's already did one joke calling garbage removers better than politicians. Mm -hmm. Not that that's really a joke, because I kind of believe that same thing. But it's still a snarky statement. And then... um you know, doing it again. And then I said, funny enough, the definition wasn't too far from the truth. So that doesn't really do it. But if you go down to the next time he speaks, which is on line 48, uh, where he says, I must admit, she isn't wrong talking about his nanny. And then it says the compliment from the expert system took him aback. And again, that should be layer on. Um, so again, I'm I'm just making sure that the reader knows that when you see these asterisks around italicized dialogue, it is dialogue. And that's one of the reasons why, so for those that are fans of mine, you know that I always write my inner monologue as a paragraph by itself with no narration around it. So why am I doing it 
with narration, again, is because this isn't inner monologue. Even though it's only being said in Laron's head, it is still someone else speaking out loud just in his head. And I do want to differentiate that visually from his own inner monologue thoughts, which is why, you know, I did it that way. Um, although on 58 and 59, there is a line of just dialogue. And I I may go back and add something a piece of narration to that, but it's it's a joke working within a joke. So I don't wanna I don't want any pause between what Ghost says and what um Laron like, thinks. I feel like by the third time we've hit this, this is good enough. You know what Actually, I mean? Actually like, it isn't. It isn't. What I'm gonna do is I'm going to turn there it is into dialogue and have Miss Yarlin say, there's what? And then him say, nothing, as he rolls his eyes and turns back to her. Because what that does is also let the reader know that no one else can hear Ghost but Laron. So I missed an opportunity there by not bringing Miss Yarlin into that discussion and having him say, there it is, like, because he... He, he's still not used to their relationship. He's still not used to the fact that he has to hide the fact that they're talking to each other. And so he makes a mistake there, um, says it out loud. The person he's with is like, that came out of nowhere. What are you, what are you even talking about? Um, and then have him have to cover for that. Um, yep. So, yeah. And then it breaks up the fact that I have a line of italicized uh dialogue from ghost without having a line of italicized inner monologue back to back with Laron. these things are, are things that i think about you know I, when i'm in editing mode obviously not when i'm in writing mode because yeah. i did the mistake but when i'm in editing mode that's when i start going hmm i don't like the fact that those two are right there next to each other from a from a standard formatting standpoint it doesn't help me i'm still in that first page mode i'm still in that training the reader mode of what i'm doing and yeah. so, so yeah, so, so that'll turn into external dialogue and I'll bring Miss Yarlin into it. And then that'll bring us back into the, those two talking, which is a good transition. So I think the, the key lesson for, for those of you watching this is you can use non-standardized dialogue tags, but do it for good reason. Don't do it for normal stuff. Don't just do it because you think it looks cute. Do it mm -hmm. because it fits what you're trying to communicate to the reader. And if it's something that's truly non-standard, like this asterisk, you're right. I remember it from from um, from Joel's work because I'm also a fan of his. Yeah. And actually, but, I didn't even think about that until just now. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, um, oh, man, I didn't think about that. Joel did that with the dragon. Yeah. That's how but, they communicate. But that's one author. Like, that's not enough to be a standard. So you have no. to educate your reader very clearly through example, showing them what this asterisk means. And then once they know, you can just go, you know. But you need, you need to another, communicate it. Another thing to think about with that, another way to say it, don't change standardized formatting. Only use non-standardized formatting for things that don't exist in standardized formatting. So just a different way to say what you just yes. said. It's the same thing. Yeah. Um, because so there is no standard formatting for 
speaking into someone else's mind. (laughs) So you're kind of on your own there to kind of figure that out. Yeah. But yeah. I just want to sound on the topic of that curly braces. I might yet find a, a, a need for them somewhere. I don't know if you know, but the, uh, you're talking about these things, right? Yes. In in all of the C languages, which are the major languages of, of computer science, that brace and its closing companion indicates a block of code. So it, it means in computing language, it means start and end. Mm-hmm. So I might yet find a use for that. <laughs> yep. Somewhere. Yeah, it, it was yeah. way too jarring for me in yeah, yeah. for this yeah, yeah. for this I, thing. I I would only use it if I'm trying to communicate start and end in some way. Like Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And since magic is kind of actually just advanced technology in this, there might be some opportunities in this be. series for that. There might but, be. So I say yes. I might find a use for that, but but I, I like the asterisks much better um, in terms of the communication of uh, telepathy. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that is good. So again, yeah. this goes back to what we were talking about in the last podcast. Be open. Your first idea is probably not the best idea. Um, mm-hmm. Be willing to change. Be willing to take advice, to ask for advice. You know, I didn't just do it and go, oh, this is the way we're doing it. I did it and I went, all right. So here's what I've tried. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I eventually did this and I actually kind of like it. But what do you think? Yeah. Like I want, because yes, we are working on this together. So it is a, a dual, mm. you know, both of our names are on this. So we both have to be happy mm. by the end product. But I do that even with my own product to my alpha readers or my beta readers where I'm like, this is what I decided to do. But how do you guys feel about it? Now, they don't have ultimate say in it. They don't, their name isn't on the product. But I still want to know their thoughts and I still want to be open to the fact that I could be very, very wrong. You know, again, I call it Drake's rule of 10. You want eight out of 10 people to say the same thing. That gives you four out of five stars. So if eight out of 10 people go, oh, no, I really like the way you did the asterisks and two out of 10 are like, no, it's stupid. You should just do it as as dialogue. Then I can go, you know what? Eight out of 10 people, they liked it. And I'm going to lose these other two. But but oh, well. You know, I'm yeah. going to do it the majority because you can't please everybody. It's subjective. Yeah. I talked about uh, the subjectiveness of this industry and, and how you have to kind of approach it mentally at my open Q&A. By the way, for those that don't know, I do an open Q&A every two, the first Tuesday of every month. So I guess I should plug that because I never plug myself. Yes. Um, if you want to sign up for it, you can either go to starvingwriterstudio.com forward slash Zoom or drakeu.com forward slash Zoom. And you sign up for it, and then uh, you know the day of, you'll get the Zoom link, and um, it's just an open Q and A. So you just join. You can type in any questions you want. I always have about a ten or 15, 20 minute little lesson thingy, and then for the next hour and a half or so, um, it's just whoever asks questions, I answer those questions, and we talk about it, and and so it's just my way of kind of giving myself, making myself available to everyone else in the world. Uh, so. If you go to the description of the podcast or of the YouTube video, you will see links to Starving Writer Studio and Drake U in the links. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Burry's Chapter 3. Well, Chapter 3 of the book, Burry's Chapter 2. So there are two things here that we're going to talk about. First is, is the importance of minor characters Mm -hmm. so in 
this section. Oh, well, let's call them tertiary characters. Tertiary character. A tertiary character is somebody who literally has no impact on the story whatsoever. And you don't even need to include them if you don't want, because it doesn't actually, it isn't a part of the plot. It isn't part mm-hmm. of anything, but, it, but you do so at your own peril when you, when you admit these type of characters. So the, the purpose of this scene and maybe, maybe I should just do this and just show you guys scene three which is chapter three, is a bureaucracy scene. But there needs to be a cue and we need to show this piece of world building. We need to show that the this precinct is poor. They are struggling. So. Well, so from the world building standpoint, we've talked about this. If you've been following along with the podcast, so Laron is in the upper echelon. He's in the 1%. Mm-hmm. He is very, very wealthy from a very, very wealthy family, has an amazing station. And we show some of that dichotomy between chapter one and chapter two, where Bury, everything is described as cramp and tight and falling apart a little bit, not necessarily pristine and, and a little dirty. And, and it's just basically my house. You know, we're just describing a normal person's house. Then we get into chapter two with Laron and everything is wide and open and lush and rich and expensive and, and, you know, and, and obviously they don't even pay attention to it because it's just the way they live. They're just like, you don't pay attention to the crack in your kitchen floor because I don't, I'm not going to pay to fix that. So just, it's going to be there and I don't care. It doesn't hurt anything. You don't pay attention to the $10,000 painting on the wall because it doesn't do anything and it's just there and, you know whatever. So we showed that, but we also need to go deeper because we don't have a character who is in object poverty. She's lower middle class. She's struggling, but she has a roof over her head. She has food in her belly, but this world isn't done there. We have other sub layers below that. And so Without getting telly and without taking a lot of time, we need to show that there isn't just these two stratospheres. And it does a lot. It makes the world feel more real. It makes the world have more depth. It makes it more vibrant and alive. And so what Marie did here with this, these tertiary characters is just brilliant. And yeah, I'd I'd love for you to read this to everybody because I think this was a great opening for this. The queue stretched eight people long before Bury, with all the parents bringing their kids. Eight families long might be more accurate. They spilled right up to the edges of the concrete sidewalk, barely avoiding the magnet pods barreling down the street. Tinshaw Precinct HQ towered up ahead of her. The flat grey roof stretched to just under the giant displays of the current date and time on the dome. Despite the scale, the precinct officers would only let in two petitioners at a time. Everyone else had to wait. Need burned in every haggard gaze and empty pocket. One place ahead of her, a small boy tugged at his mom's hand. I'm hungry. His yellow eyes dominated a pinched face, too thin for his age. The mother hugged him close to her skirt with her right hand, a small babe cuddled in her left. I'm sorry, lovey. We need another kitchen stamp. He buried his face in the threadbare brown cloth of her skirt and the black lines on his hollow cheeks scrunched together. 
His mother patted his orange hair, the hollow in her throat deepening as he swallowed. Buri slipped her hand into her pocket, but she didn't even have a stray bit of bread there. Kylie had always fed the neighborhood kids from the back door of the bakery, handing out the uniced cupcakes that didn't sell in time. Durin infused, they had kept the kids healthy, even if they didn't enhance them like icing would. But since Buri had taken over the baking, it took a real desperate child to come by in the evening for the cakes. So stop and, right there. Yeah. Those two lines do so much world building. Three lines, really. Um, like we have the fact that her sister was a you know had a philanthropist streak in her, even though they're lower middle class. We get some of the magic stuff that that the food, even though it has durin and it does enhance health, it doesn't actually do anything beyond that. Uh, we've already seen her icing cakes and and stuff like that, so it just it's a callback to kind of. Uh, set that up there um but it also shows i love the line 19 and 20 because it shows how little burry actually thinks about her own cooking abilities which is again just a callback to chapter one where we're hammering on the fact that she just isn't good at this job like she's so bad at this job that street urchins won't eat her crap like they eat out of garbage and they won't eat her food so like there's just in those three little lines, you can do so much world building. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, an old woman behind Buri tapped her on the shoulder. You pass this up to the kid? She held out a cinnamon stalk with hard spun beet sugar packed onto it. Of course. Buri put her hand on the mother's elbow and offered the candy. Oh, tears sparkled in yellow eyes as she passed it down to her son. Thanks. Wasn't me. Buri pointed back at the old woman who gave her who gave the mother a toothless smile, black lines curling up over dimples. The mother clasped her hands in gratitude, and the old woman kissed her fingertips in response. At least we got each other. The thought cheered Buri up a bit. If the precinct team won the naughty race, they'd get a chunk of cash from the city for the jiren. Then maybe that boy would eat regular, for a while at least. The kid stared at her with round yellow eyes. As he licked right. along the suite. Hey, your buries are in. Yeah, you can kind of yeah. stop there. Because, I mean, this the, these characters will never be seen again, more than likely. I mean, you know, tertiary characters can always have callbacks, you know, if yeah. there's needed. But these aren't Chekhov's gun. If we never see these people again, no one misses them. But you could have easily have written the scene without them. You didn't need, she could just walk up. There's a line of people. She waits in line. She finally gets in and, and she does the scene. But it it shows the depth of the world. It, it adds this layer of reality. Um, and it just, it just does so much when you include these tertiary characters as opposed to when you don't. And it allows you to do it all without being heavy-handed with your world building. Because the mm -hmm. attitude of the tertiary characters to the world around you shows you the world, mm -hmm. you know, and you can see it in like the child that's too thin for his age and like the old mother who hands up, you know, like the whole interaction is about like there's a sense of community in this poor neighborhood. So think about that when you're doing it, just because you have a scene doesn't mean that you don't have other people in that scene. 
you know, tertiary characters can be very powerful tools to help show your story without burdening the story down. And I think that people sometimes are like, well, you know, like I need to, like here, I didn't even name these tertiary characters. Right. And and throughout the narration, they're the boy, the mother, and the old woman. Mm-hmm. Right? That's That's all who they are. And that's all that needs to be. That's all they need to be because a a name would be a name that the reader now has to keep track of as well. And Mm -hmm. that like readers get overwhelmed by names. So I was like, they don't need names. Like they can just be what they are. It also is a, I think giving a character, a tertiary character name gives it more weight. Mm. And so it starts to become a Chekhov's gun. It's Mm. like, wait a minute, the little boy Rudy that we met with the piece of candy how come I never saw Rudy again? Where's Rudy? Yeah. What happened to Rudy? Did he did he did he get some food? Did he not get some food? Like it becomes now somebody that I want to know more about. So it becomes more of a Chekhov's gun as opposed to the boy, the street mm-hmm. urchin, whatever. You know, we're done. We don't you that's that's kind of your your hint to the reader, hey, this is a moment in time that I want you to experience, but don't worry about the the people in it. Mm-hmm. You're not gonna see these people again. Yes. And so you don't need to do a lot of descriptions except for descriptions that matter to what you're trying to accomplish. You don't need to name them. You don't need to, you know, just show the emotions and show the whatever it is that you're trying to show. Like in this case, we're trying to show that there is a homeless population or at least a abject poverty level that have to beg for food, that have to come to the government and say, I haven't made any money. I need government support. You've got to give me food stamps or I can't feed my children. It also shows that this society has a safety net. Yeah. However bad the safety net might be, there is a safety net. Right. Yeah. Which shows that it is an advanced civilization, at least from a governmental standpoint. Yeah. People aren't literally starving in the streets. Right. They're not like, it's not a great place to live, but it's not the, it's not the worst. (laughs) Right. You know, there there are worse places, kind of thing. Well, this world's a little different, but there are worse places in theory. <laughs> right. I do. I do want to say here, though, that I did also. The narration does refer to them, though, as mother, old woman, etc. So they have almost names based on their role. Right. 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 So that I don't have to keep using the woman or the this or the that. Like I can use something that's a placeholder name. Yeah. You always want to look for at least two. So you have the mother and the woman. Um, You have the old mother and the old woman. You have the child and the boy. And so that gives you a little bit of variance. So you're just not repeating the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then the last thing that we wanted to talk about is just a line of dialogue, mm-hmm. which is this line of dialogue. So the boy recognizes Buri and says, the kid stared at her with round yellow eyes as he licked the sweet, sweet. Hey, you're Buri Zuren. And then she says, I, how did the boy know that? I, yeah, I am. And Drake said, shouldn't that be well dialogue? And I said, no, because what I'm trying to do is put a pause in for the reader to understand that there's a pause between the first eye and the second eye, because they, they're both kind of like trailing words. And he said, mm. and you said, <laughs> well, so let me start by saying the reason why I popped it. Mm. I am still very. So we all have things that we are 
that we spend more time on, that we're more sensitive to and so on. One of the things that I'm sensitive to is asking the reader a question because it makes me go like, how did the boy know that? I'm like, wait, are are, are you asking me? Because I didn't write this book. What, what, wait, I'm just reading it. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know the answer to that. And so it, it throws me out of the story when the when the narration asks me a question because I'm not supposed to be a part of this equation. And so when she was reading it and we were going over to, for the editing side of it, that's why I popped it was specifically for that reason. And so, you know, my first thing was it would be so much better if you just cut the yeah, I am just say, I how did you know that? Uh, and she said, well, then that doesn't give me what I'm looking for because I want to pause between the two. And I'm like, OK, great then there's a billion other pieces of narration that you could put there that give you the same thing. Like I, she scrunched up her head or I, she racked her brain trying to think if she had ever seen this boy before. I mean, there's a million different things you could put there. That's a small little short piece of narration that isn't a question uh, for the reader. And then, you know, then you can do, how do you know that? Or if you don't want to have, how do you know that? Which I actually think is stronger than, yeah, I am. I think the how, how do you know that would be a better piece of dialogue than yeah, I am. But let's say, you know, she doesn't want to use that. She she still wants to use the yeah, yeah, I am. Then she still can put another piece of dialogue in there to get rid of that question. So and and that's that's 100 percent. I probably will end up putting the how do how how do you know that as a question. But I still want the break between the I and the, the right. end of it, because I want like the reader to get the sense of Buri thinking like, mm -hmm. you know, what is she thinking now? Sorry. The, uh, yeah. The reason why I put the question there is because in free and free and indirect, which is what I normally write in you, the narration can involve the reader in this fashion. The, the narration can present what is essentially internal monologue as though it is narration. That is part of the structure of that particular voice. And since um, I write in strict limited, mm. I'm not allowed to do that, which is why I'm sensitive to that particular thing. But I also think it's a little less strong. So I think it's a lot stronger. And this is my opinion. Everything's opinion is all subjective. Yeah. But I think it's a lot stronger to have an emotional reaction there. Mm. Um, let me actually feel something that Burry is feeling and then have her ask the boy, how do you know? How do you know who I am? But what it does importantly, and what I also want to highlight to our viewers and listeners, is there is a piece of dialogue, then there is a break. Now, what that break does is it emphasizes to the reader that Buri says a thing, then, then there is a pause, then she does something else. Without ever using the word Buri paused, there was this, there was there's nothing explicit about it, but the way that the scent, the way the paragraph is structured, there is a pause between the two pieces of dialogue that the reader hears when they're reading it. Using structure to dictate pacing mm. is a tool that you must use in creative writing. And yes, it definitely means that you don't have to use the crappy I. She paused, not knowing what to say. I, yeah, yeah, I am. Like, well, she obviously knows what she's to say because she just said it. And she obviously paused because you have words here. It's just such a waste to do that. She paused thinking about what she would say. Like, like, no, there's a million better ways to do that. It's so unorganic to, to say stuff like that. 
it's just, yeah, just understanding to use the pacing of the structure or use structure to set your pacing. Yeah. So I agree. You know, once you said that, I was like, no, I want to, I want to pause there. I'm like, okay, there's a million ways to do it. And that's the other thing. It's just not getting locked into the fact of this is the way I want to do it. So this is the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And, but, but you must understand that structure, the structure of your paragraph and your sentence communicates pacing to the reader. It's why I talk about like having uh, fragmented sentences can really have impact, especially if you have like a one word paragraph, mm. um, you know, uh, on the last podcast, we were reading this one thing and um, the line is something like, um, and there was no better career than, and then I did an M dash and an inner monologue. He says politics, but not in a good way because his shoulders mm. slump and he lets yeah. out a sigh and, you know, he doesn't want to do it. Uh, yeah. It's above that. I, I'm pretty sure. Line nine and nine. Yeah. So, and the most successful of careers was politics. He sighed inwardly, even as he pasted on a smile. So it's just, yeah. it shows that he doesn't like the word, that he doesn't like the career. It doesn't matter that it's the most powerful. Um, but that one word paragraph, you know, has impact on the reader. And so I'm using structure to force the reader to feel certain things because that's grammatically incorrect. Like, hmm. It's grammatically incorrect to have, and the most successful career was M dash. Like that is not the way it, you would do that, but it doesn't matter. Creative is the first word in creative writing. So I'm getting creative. I'm doing this. No one's going to, no one's going to hit that line and go, wow, this writer sucks. I'm done. I'm never reading him again. He put an M dash at the end of a fragmented sentence. Like now, no one's going to do that. They're just going to read right through it. It's just going to, you know, paint that picture. Okay. But do it sparingly. Like, don't do that every page. <laughs> do that like, like once every few chapters at most. <laughs> and and two, it's in everything. And I know we've had this this discussion before about like stage direction, but it bears repeating mm. um, or timing direction. Don't say mm. and then. Like the one thing follows the other because it's right after the first thing. <laughs> like, you know I have that. got a private client that I'm reading through right now that is literally, so there was a thing that I've had for years that I picked on as being the worst thing I'd ever read. This is now the new King. It is, I don't even know how to describe it and I can't because I'm under, you know, it's a private client, but and the the stage direction, just the then, blah blah blah, then blah blah blah, then I mean like like over and over and over in the same paragraph. You know, Drake walked into the kitchen, then he picked up a pot, then he found himself staring into the bottom of the pot, daydreaming about uh the food that he didn't have. Then he walked over to the refrigerator, then with nothing else to do, he put the pot down and went back into the to the um living room where then he found himself sitting on the couch watching tv or flipping through the channel it's like oh my god like english english communicates by itself that these things happen in sequence right. you, you don't you don't need it yeah you don't need no. it it's, <laughs> it's no it's, one reads the sentence and goes oh it's all happening at once like we don't think in a thread pool <laughs> 
I, I, I mean, if you do it right, the word as, which is one of the words that I overuse, but still, you know, his head whipped back as the bottle smashed into his forehead. We can get away with some little things like that. But yeah. again, I overuse that. And it's something that I cut out of my writing as I'm going through. I actually do one edit pass just on the word as because I use it too much. Um, but we all have our weaknesses. We all have our foibles. If you were listening to the raw writing from the last podcast, I think there's one paragraph where I said uh, some turn of phrase um, like as if it wasn't as if what was it? Um, I don't remember what it was, but it was a. There's a turn of phrase that I used like four times in two paragraphs. I'm like, wow. Um, but that's my raw writing. And so I'll catch that on no. the the editing no. side of it. No. So we all have that. Yeah. And and you must just you must just be aware of those foibles you have and, and edit it out. Like I, I have them as well. I have plenty of them. I have a sentence structure I'm particularly fond of, which is adding a uh, ing sentence at the end of the sentence, so I'll be like, um, you know, her 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 breath caught in her chest, um, cramping her lungs together, which is fine. But when every sentence is structured like that, it becomes very apparent. <laughs> so, you know, you should be aware of those kinds of 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 repeats that you have in yourself and try and edit it out and so on. Use English's structure to your advantage in pacing your narrative. And you won't regret it. Yeah. It will read way better than stage direction. That's a pretty good place to end at. We did a, a dialogue and a dialogue and a tertiary characters in between. So what did you think of using strange dialogue tags? What have you seen? Let us know in the comments. Do you have foibles that you think you do that you're like, I would really like to know maybe how to fix this or what your suggestion to fix this? Um, I'm really good at giving suggestions. I'm like, <laughs> because it comes down to what I always say is don't lock into how you're doing something. Lock into what you're trying to do. So like the thing we just talked about with Marie, she's like, well, I'm trying to show a pause. Great. Then here's 15 other ways to do that exact same thing that I think all could be stronger than the way you did it and still accomplish. Cause so again, it's only about accomplishing the goal that you're trying to set forth, not, you know, not being locked into, no, I accomplish it this way. I'm going to stick to it. Um, especially if somebody can show you that it's better and you agree with that, like, you know, your name is on the product at the end of the day. So you have to agree with it. Don't just ever follow anyone blindly. Not even me. If you don't like it, you don't like it. If you have foibles that that you would like us to to see if we can find a solution for, post them in the comments, send them to our mailing address, releasingyourinnerdragon at gmail.com. Also remember that we do live edit other people's works. So if you're interested in us live editing a page or two of your work, send it along to releasingyourinnerdragon at gmail.com. No um, more than about three, four, at most 500 words. We won't get to it. Yeah. As we spend a lot of time <laughs> on just a couple paragraphs. Yeah. So we, we won't get further than 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 that. At most a thousand words. Um I'd say but, at most five hundred words, but yeah. <laughs> but send send it along if you if you want us to edit it. We will change the names of the characters and so on to to protect your work and so on, and then edit it live on air and send you the document afterwards with our notes and our thoughts in in detailed comments. And we will see you soon 
for another episode of Releasing Your Inner Dragon. Bye.